get Zechariah chapter 14 and Revelation chapter 1. Zechariah 14 and Revelation chapter 1. Hey, did y'all see, did y'all hear the text that I announced? Chapter 14. We went through an entire chapter in two weeks. So I do take tips. I will. I can be bribed. All right, let's have a word of prayer and we'll dive in. Lord, thank you so much for Grace Baptist Church. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to gather here. And Lord, thank you for giving us your word that we can study. And Lord, as I said this morning, we don't deserve any of it. We don't deserve your revelation, but you've given it to us. And Lord, I pray that you'll reward our study tonight and that you'll be glorified by what we learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, Zechariah 14 and verse 1. Behold... The day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. Now, whose spoil? It is Israel's spoil. Verse 2. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity. And the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. So what's going to happen soon is the rapture of the church, and we're going to be taken out. And when we are taken out, then on earth is going to begin that seven-year tribulation period. And what happens in the book of Zechariah is you really need to know what time it is when you're reading. So look at chapter 13 and verse 1. In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David. So we know when that is. That day is the day that Jesus Christ returns, sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, as it says in chapter 14 and verse 4. That's the millennium. And it shall come to pass, and we learn all of that. But then we drop back in verse 6 to understanding that Jesus Christ said that verse was his crucifixion and his disciples being scattered. And that's why if you get a generic commentary on the book of Zechariah and you begin reading it, the, they change, as I mentioned, they change verse 6, chapter 14 and verse 6, and one shall say unto him, what are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. And when you look at that in some of the commentaries, they're going to say, these are the wounds that, what are these wounds on your back? That's in the modern translations. And in the commentaries, this is talking about those prophets that are false prophets. They're asking the prophets, where are these wounds? Why do they do that? Because they don't know how to ask, what time is it? What's being referenced? Now, I've got to say, The chapter 13 and verse 6, that controversy, is it dealing with uh, Jesus or with those false prophets? 
It might be hard if Jesus in Matthew 26 hadn't told us what it means. How many of you think that what Jesus says about the verse is what the verse means? How many of you think that that's an easy way to understand it? So what in the world is wrong with these guys? I don't, maybe they don't think Jesus' commentary on it is significant. It's a good question, isn't it? And so when we get into chapter 14 and we begin asking, what time is it for us to understand? Well, verse 1 is pretty simple. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. Now, when you look at all that that's going to happen, the women being ravished and the, the, half the people being killed and all of these things that are being spoken of here, how many of you are thankful that you're not going to be there? So tonight, what I want us to look at is how do we know that we're not going to be there? How do we know? So let's go to Revelation. Put your marker here in Zechariah 14. Let's go to Revelation chapter 1. Look at verse 20. <clears throat> well, look at verse 19 for the context. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. And of course, those of you who have been a Christ Baptist, you know that that's the outline that God gives us for the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 is the things that thou hast seen. Chapters 2 and 3 are the things which are. And chapters 4 through 22 are the things which shall be hereafter. But notice what it says in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. All right? Now, how many of you have a hard time understanding that? It's just a clear declarative statement. He's explaining what those seven stars are. And then look at what it says. Uh, the, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. <clears throat> so what's being spoken of here in this chapter are the churches. How many of you are following me so far? All right. So then if you go to chapter 2, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, right. So it's to the church of Ephesus. Look at chapter 2 and verse 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, right. Look at verse 12. And to the angel of the church of in Pergamos, right. Then look at verse 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira, right. Drop down to um, verse chapter 3 and verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis, chapter 3 and verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, and then verse 14, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Now, of course, you'll notice that there's a change in the language there, right? It's no longer the Lord's church. It's the Laodiceans church. But go with me to chapter 4 and verse 1. The first words are, after this. After what? Look at the verse that's right before it, chapter 3 and verse 22. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So after what? After the church age, when God is done dealing with the church, when God is done dealing with the world through his church, after that, all of these other events happen. And so it's important to understand that distinction as we look at this. If you look at chapter uh, 6 and verse 1, Revelation 6 and verse 1, 
And I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals. Now, the title of this, my message tonight is 21 reasons why the church will not go through the tribulation. I stole that from James Knox. 21 reasons why the church will not go through the tribulation. Here are the reasons. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven vials. That's 21 reasons why the church will not go through the tribulation. All of that is the wrath of God poured out onto this world. What we're going to see tonight is why the churches will not, and and the churches, by the churches, I'm talking about saved people. We saved people are all a part of the church of God. How many of you are born again? All right. If you're born again, you are a part of the church. You are a part of the church, which is Christ's body. Every saved person, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for we have all been baptized by one spirit into one body. And that body is not Grace Baptist. That body is Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible says we are seated with him in heavenly places. Right now, Jim Alter is seated with Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father in him. I am in him right now. Listen, that is not future That's right now. I am seated with him in heavenly places. And that's one of the mysteries of salvation. Christ in you. Jesus Christ is in me and I am in him. Amen. And so when we talk about the rapture of the church, that's Jesus Christ not taking out every baptized Baptist. That's God taking out every born again believer, regardless of what church they are a member of. Or for you grammar teachers, regardless of whatever church they are a member. Nathaniel, did that help you? Okay. He was having, he's doing this. Um, so when we, James Knox in his, uh, uh, by definition, he has rules for writers. And one of them is prepositions are words that you should never end a sentence with. <laughs> That's awesome. So, we know that one day soon, Jesus Christ is going to return and there's going to be the the shout, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain, we're going to be taken out too. So, when we talk about the church age, that's the period of time from Pentecost through the rapture, where the Holy Spirit is indwelling believers and empowering us to be witnesses throughout the whole world. And God has chosen to work through New Testament churches, and a New Testament church is different than the church which is his body. The only thing you have to do to be in the body of Christ is you need to get saved. Amen? The local church, well, God gave some some specific instructions. They, they are, you have to be born again to become a member of the local church, the New Testament church. You have to be born again. You have to have followed the Lord and believers' baptism following your salvation, and that baptism has to be by immersion. Amen? Are you all with me on this? And so there are some specific things that God has said about the New Testament church, and then you have to live a life... That brings honor to the Lord. If you are living a life that publicly brings reproach on the Lord and his church, 
God has provided something called church discipline. And people are removed from the church. And listen to the words of Satan, or the words of Satan, the words of Scripture. We turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the soul may be saved in the day of judgment. So we don't remove anyone's salvation. We remove their church membership and we turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And let me tell you, folks, when you do that, it is a serious, serious thing, as many of you know. So what's going to happen is notice what it says in chapter 4 and verse 1. After this, after what? After the rapture, after the churches are taken out. Look at verse 1. After this, I looked and behold, a door was opened. Where? In heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be Hereafter, Remember, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. The hereafter starts in chapter 4 and goes through chapter 22. Look at, now look at, keep your place in Revelation here because we're going to come back. But look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So get 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And when you have 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, just just put a marker there. Um, Go back with me to Revelation uh, chapter 2. And look at verse... Well, someone find it for me. What I'm looking for is where uh, Jesus tells them that tells one of the churches that he's going to remove their candlestick. Unless they repent, he's going to remove their candlestick. So if somebody has that, raise your hand for me and, and give me 2-5. Okay, Revelation 2-5. Was that a King James, Brandon? Okay, good. So <laughs> Revelation 2-5. Remember, therefore... Now, this is, this is Blackford Christmas today. So look at all the Blackfords over here. Blackford Christmas. And you know what's fun? It got to be a white Christmas. How about that? All right. So Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. What is that talking about? They stop being a church? You know, there are a lot of organizations that have the word church, but they're not actually a church. They cease being a church. And what is it about the church at Ephesus that caused Jesus to say, except you repent, I'm going to remove that candlestick? Because remember, this is the first church. Ephesus, this is the the apostles, and this is the beginning of Christianity. So look at what he says in verse 2. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, 
and for my name hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So what Jesus is talking about to this church at Ephesus is they had done a good job. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, he said that he was going to be leaving. But after my departure, and he's, he's saying this to the church at Ephesus, after my departure, wolves are going to enter in, not sparing the flock. And you know what the church at Ephesus did? They did a good job stopping the wolves. These people who said they were apostles and they're not. He said, you're liars. That's what the church said. And Jesus said, good job. Thanks for calling them liars because they're liars. So they did a good job stopping the wolves. But the second part of the passage in Acts 20, he says, after my departure, it's something like that. He says that, that grievous wolves are in, shall enter in, not sparing the flock, but also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things. So the battle from without, they did a good job with. But the doctrinal error from within, they didn't do a good job with. And so what happened was there were all kinds of false teachings that started. And here's what it was. They were adding words, phrases, and concepts to the Bible. So like Polycarp said, faith is the mother. I'm sorry, the church is the mother of us all. Church is the mother. The Bible never says the church is our mother. And so from that came the teaching that there's no salvation outside of the church. How many of you are glad that people can get saved outside of Grace Baptist Church? Amen. You get saved by placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal life. You don't get saved by becoming a Baptist. Very important, very important distinctive or distinction. So those were the things. And here's what Jesus Christ said in John chapter 14. If you love me, keep my words. That's what he said. If you love me, keep my words. Earlier in the chapter, if you love me, keep my commandments. So what the church at Ephesus did was they started adding words, phrases, concepts, teachings that were outside of the sphere of the word of God. And Jesus said, unless you repent of that, if you don't repent of that, you're going to stop being a church. I'm going to remove your candlestick. Wouldn't that be awful? You know what the good news is? He didn't say he'd remove your salvation. He said the church at Ephesus would cease being a New Testament church. So we have a responsibility. We have a personal responsibility to get saved. And then we as a church, we have the responsibility, the corporate responsibility to make sure that we are doctrinally pure. Look at the way that Paul wrote it. Look at Ephesians chapter five. We will get to second Thessalonians. All right, Ephesians chapter 5, and look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy 
and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth, even cherisheth it, even as Christ, I'm sorry, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So Jesus Christ, he has saved us. So individually, we as believers, again, how many of you are born again? How many of you are born again? Before God, you stand completely clean, righteous, holy, absolutely pure. Your record is clear. Like we looked at from from, uh, Exodus last week, Jesus Christ has cleared the guilty. Amen? Do you know that God wants that for our church, our church corporate, Grace Baptist Church, as well? We do that by making sure that we are doctrinally and morally pure. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're not going to turn there, but God is dealing with the church at Corinth, and the apostle Paul is writing, and he says, your glorying is not good. What were they glorying in? They were glorying in being nice to sinners. Not nice to sinners out there. Nice to sinners in here. And he said, I've judged this already. You should be judging it there. So God wants the church, the local church, to be holy so that when Jesus Christ raptures us out, we're not to be ashamed. Amen? And the other thing is, that was a good place for an amen right there. Amen? Amen. And what God wants us to do is he wants us to stay right and stay pure so that he can continue to work through us to reach our community. But here's the good news. Not only is he going to do that, he's going to reward us at the judgment seat of Christ for what we've done, listen, in the body, in his church. It's so important that we understand what he has for us. Now, look with me at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and look at verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, verse 2, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us that the day of Christ is at hand. So we shouldn't be troubled by the day of Christ. Now what's the day of Christ? The day of Christ, it depends on the context here. The day of Christ would be the rapture of the church and Jesus Christ taking us out. But we don't have to worry that that has happened. And that's what people were worried about. That the judgment was going to come and they were stuck under it. So look at what is said. Look at verse 21. That's going to be tough. Look with me at... um, Verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. I love to tell this when I read that verse, a falling away. I was listening to James Knox years ago, and he likes to come up with weird possible explanations. So he doesn't say this is what it is. He said, just think if it was this. So remember, when Jesus Christ returns, 
He's coming from one direction, the north. What happens if you're in the south? Do you get drugged through the earth? So what do you have to do? You would have to fall away from the earth to be taken out. No, <laughs> but, but it's a funny thing to think about. I don't think that that's what it's teaching, but Knox thought it was fun to throw it out. So what is the falling away? Just a complete turning away from God. Okay, a complete turning away from God. So now look at what it says in verse 3 again. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. Now look, and that man of sin be, what's that word right there? Revealed, the son of perdition. And here's what people say. Do you think the Antichrist is alive today? You know what I always say? Yes. And if the rapture doesn't place, take place, he'll die and there'll be another one that's waiting for Satan to indwell him. Satan probably has an Antichrist ready at any time. No, it's probably not your mother-in-law. It's a man. But there's always someone ready. So now look at this. He's going to be revealed, the son of perdition, verse 4, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Look, so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So how do we know that the church is not going through this wrath to come this tribulation period. How do we know that? The temple hasn't been built. The temple hasn't been built. You don't have to be looking for the Antichrist until the temple is built. When the temple is built, then now Antichrist has something that he can work with. Until then, don't worry about it. We don't look for the Antichrist. We look for the Lord Jesus Christ. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So we don't have to worry about that because the, there are 21 specific judgments that are about to rain down on people. The Bible says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't be troubled. There's no temple. There's no temple. So why will the church be gone before the tribulation? All right, get Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to go to Revelation 13. Matthew chapter 16. <clears throat> and Revelation 13. <coughs> Verse 13, Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And I want you to notice something right there. Is John the Baptist listed with apostles or with prophets? Is John the Baptist listed with apostles or with prophets? I had like three answers. Prophets. Remember, all the, all the prophets were until John. John was, was the last of the Old Testament prophets. It's really important that you see that. Can't understand your Bible if you think John the Baptist was starting a church. Okay? Now, there will be someone listening to this online who has been taught that we get our authority to baptize from John the Baptist. If you're listening to this online, 
and that's what you believe, you're wrong. We get our authority to baptize from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? We call it the Great Commission. Who gave the Great Commission, John the Baptist or Jesus Christ? Okay. John was an Old Testament prophet. All right. So now let's go on. Verse 15. He saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my father, which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, If Jesus had already started the church, what's happening right here? How many of you think that's a good question? So Jesus Christ, and I don't have time to spend a lot of time right here, but Jesus Christ, when he was on earth, he was offering the nation of Israel the kingdom. Remember Matthew chapter 10 and verse 5. He said, well, look at it, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely have received, freely give. So now that's not the commission that we have as a church. How many of you recognize that? That is not our commission. If you recognize that's not our commission, raise your hand for me. I want to make sure that we're all on the same page here. Would that you all speak the same thing. There should be no divisions among you. That you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. It's very important. This was the message that the apostles were preaching. And it's the the idea that Jesus Christ was offering the kingdom to Israel. Jesus Christ was offering to be their king on the earth in Jerusalem. And they rejected him. But how many of you realize that Jesus Christ knew what they were going to do? How many of you know that? So what Jesus was doing is while making a legitimate offer of the kingdom to Israel, he is also at the same time, he begins teaching his disciples about the coming church. So that's why in these passages like this, he's teaching them about the church. They didn't even know what the church was. I like to ask this question. Can a person be a member of a New Testament church, a legitimate member, and not believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. No, the disciples didn't believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. Amen? They didn't even know what it was about. They had no idea. Look at Mark chapter 9. Verse 9. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And so, of course, they're thinking, okay, after Christ's resurrection, we can talk about it. That's what they were thinking, right? Look at the next verse. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another, what the rising of the dead should mean. What's he talking about? John chapter 20, after the resurrection of Christ. John chapter 20. Verse 1, 
The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark. She sees that the stones rolled away, that the tomb is empty. Verse 2, then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they have laid him. Why didn't she think about the resurrection? It's true. He rose from the dead. Why didn't Peter and John look at her and say, it happened. He rose. Praise God. Look at what they did. They run. They look in the empty tomb. Look at verse 8. Then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulcher. That's John. And he saw and believed. And so at Easter, you'll have preachers all over the country. He believed in the resurrection. He saw and he believed. Amen. That's good preaching. It's just not true. Read the next verse. For as yet, they knew, what's that next word? The scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So while Jesus Christ is making a legitimate offer of the kingdom to Israel, knowing they're going to reject him, he begins teaching his disciples about the coming church age. And one of the things that Jesus Christ teaches them is that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against the church. Now, there have been dark times in the world when it seems like the, that, that Satan had won. The, the, remember that old uh, the church triumphant that the Gaithers did? Was it 40 years ago? And Gloria speaks. You know, she does one of her sermons in the song. And the, there were times when it was when the church had seemed like it had gone underground. But the purest stream is the stream that bursts crystal clear after making its way through solid rock. God has always had a people. How many of you remember that? I love that. I get goosebumps, even if it is Gloria saying it. It's good. There were times when you look through history and it seems like there are no true churches. I'm just telling you, there were true churches. The gates of hell did not prevail against the church. It, it could be in the, the early times. It could have been Montanists or Donatists or Novatians or Albigensians or Waldensians. It could have been the, the Paulicians. It could have been any of these different groups that rose up as dissenters, hiding in caves and, and preaching the gospel, knowing, knowing that the judgment of the established church was going to come down on them. Someone has said that they preached like prophets, they prayed like saints, and they died like flies. But God has always had a people. He's always had a people. And he started teaching that the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. I want you to look at another passage here. Look with me at Revelation chapter 13. Now, are we clear that Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against the church? Okay, Revelation chapter 13, look at verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, and gave power, uh, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? 
And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and power was given unto him to continue 40 and two months. That's three and a half years. And he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. Look at this. Verse 7. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So what we have here, this is such an interesting thing. Whoever the beast is waging war against, there are saints among them whom he overcomes. Jesus said his church would not be prevailed against, though the very gates of hell be opened against it. So we have two groups of saints, two groups. One is taken out before the beast is revealed, and one is left to, be, to do battle with the beast. The church is gone. The church is gone. So what do we have? The saints of God who are saved in the church age, they're taken out. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. That's a good place to say amen. (laughs) Is it true? The gates of hell cannot prevail against us. We're not going to be overcome by Satan. Remember what Jesus said. It's not that which enters into a man that defiles the man, but that which proceeds out of him. Satan's not going to overcome me. If I fall, it's because I fall. But even if I fall, Jesus Christ will catch me. It's such a wonderful thing. I am saved forever and Satan cannot overcome me. But whoever these saints are, some of them are overcome by this beast. Look at Revelation chapter 4. Look at verse 2. And immediately, of course, we read verse 1. And immediately, I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne was set where? In heaven. And one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. So these people, if you look, look at chapter 5 and look at verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. So what happens is when this, when this event takes place, The church is raptured out. We're around the throne, worshiping God, clothed in white raiment with crowns on our heads. Remember, the Bible talks about the different crowns, the soul winner's crown, these different crowns that we can receive. And what do we do with those crowns? We put them at Jesus' feet. All of that has happened before. Look at Revelation 6. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals... And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And what happens? You have these four horsemen of the apocalypse and 
all of the judgments that start. Before that first seal is opened, the church is around Jesus Christ's throne, robed in white with crowns on our heads. How many of you are thankful you don't have to go through the wrath to come? Praise his name. Now, who opens the sealed book? Well, and I saw when the Lamb had opened it. The Lamb. It's wonderful that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. But you know what the people on earth see? The Lion of the tribe of Judah. The people in heaven see the Lamb with the scars in his hands. The people on earth get the judgment, the wrath of the Lion of the tribe of Judah. I want to see the Lamb. How about you? Yeah, amen. Then look at Jeremiah chapter 30. Zechariah 14.1 is not about us. Jeremiah chapter 30, look at verse 4. And these are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now and see whether a man doth travail with child. When you see that word travail... Always look for the tribulation period. Wherefore, do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. He shall be saved out of it. This is the time of Jacob's trouble, not the time of the church's trouble. Look at Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, look at verse 5. We have sinned, this is Daniel praying, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. So Daniel is praying an intercessory prayer for the nation of Israel because he knew that the captivity was coming to an end. But he begins to make a prophecy about this coming time of tribulation and look at verse um, look at verse 24 70 weeks are determined upon this is the message upon thy people and upon thy holy city remember the bible says in hebrews 13 14 we we have here no continuing city we don't have a holy city sydney is not the holy city right we are not a city on a hill we're not the light of the world that's Jerusalem, all right? Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression. My transgression was finished when Jesus Christ said it is finished. My transgression is finished. And to make an end of sins, my sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers them no more. And to make reconciliation for iniquity. Do you know what Jesus Christ did? He reconciled us, and he's given us, according to 2 Corinthians 5, the ministry of reconciliation. Whereby, we, we're ambassadors for Christ. Whereby we say, be ye reconciled to him. We've been reconciled. My iniquity's washed away. And, bring in, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. You want to know something? I have everlasting righteousness. Why? Because my righteousness isn't my righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is not about me. 
and to seal up the vision. To seal up the vision, we have everything that God has given us and prophesy and to anoint the most holy. What does it mean to anoint the most holy? To anoint the Messiah. That's what Messiah means is the anointed one. When the Messiah comes, that's when all of this is going to take place. All of these things know, therefore, verse 25, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And then the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. And if you do the math, that's the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ to the exact day. That Jesus Christ is going to come and he's going to be cut off, not for himself. Verse 27. Desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many. This is the Antichrist. For one week. That's a week of years, seven years for one week. And in the midst of the week... He shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. What's going to happen? Second Thessalonians chapter 2. He's going to set himself up as God, to be worshipped as God in the temple. Daniel is prophesying that. Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 24. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, flee into the mountains. Pray that it's not in winter. Don't go back into your house for anything. When you see that thing set up, head to the hills. That's what this is speaking of here. And the priest shall come to destroy the city and the sanctuary. Verse 27, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. You want to know something? We're not desolate. The Bible says, look at... uh, Second Peter chapter 1. Man, if that was coming, could we have grace and peace be pronounced unto us? Second Peter chapter 1, look at verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, that uh, through the knowledge of him that hath called us unto glory and virtue, or is it unto desolation? You see, who are the desolate? The desolate are those Jews that the tribulation period comes down upon. This wrath is pronounced on them. That is not pronounced on us. So let's finish this. Go to 2 Thessalonians. I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. All right, if you haven't done it, mark the pronouns, this section. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But of the, How many of you have the pronouns marked? Would you raise your hands? This will be good to me. Hold them up. Everybody hold your hands up. Everybody look around. All right, so mark these pronouns because you're going to see two different groups of people here. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 1, But of the times and of the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail. Do you see that word again? Travail? Upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But look at this. But the contrasting conjunction, I love that word. But ye, brethren... 
are not in the darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Sober, For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. Verse 9. For God hath, what's that next word? Everyone, what is it? Not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, whether we're alive or dead, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Go to Malachi chapter 4. Darkness. These people are in darkness. We saw this morning that it destroys a third of the moon, third of the sun, third of the stars, so it shines not for a third part of it. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall leave them neither root or branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. That son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings, that's not for us. You know why? The Bible says, because if you dwell in the light as he is in the light, he forgives you from all unrighteousness. Do you know what happens to us when we're taken out? We're actually dwelling in the light. There's no darkness. We're not waiting for the son of righteousness to arise. Those people in the tribulation period, they're living in utter awful darkness. And Jesus Christ arises with healing in his wings. He comes back to the earth. None of that is for us. Praise God, that's not for us. We've been delivered from wrath. Go back to Zechariah chapter 14. Verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Folks, that's not us. That is not us. Praise God. Thank you, Lord, for your word and the opportunity to study it. Lord, uh, thank you that, that we are the church, that all of us who are saved, we're a part of your body.